Thank you for downloading this podcast from the Pardes Institute of Jewish Studies. This episode of Pardes from Jerusalem features Rabbanit Nechama Goldman Barish on Parashat Korach. Five days, 28 class options, and one memorable summer learning experience. The Pardes Learning Seminar, Summer 2021, is online this year from July 4th to July 8th. Cultivating Courage and Resilience, Chazak Ve'ematz. Be sure to get more information at www.pardes.org.il forward slash seminar. Communal leaders, professionals, lifelong learners, and most importantly, you. Join us today. And now, here is Rabbanit Nechama Goldman Barish. A young woman on the eve of her wedding went to immerse in a mikveh in Jerusalem. When she mentioned that she was a bride, the mikveh attendants quickly discovered that she was not getting married through the rabbinate and refused to allow her in. They did not listen to her story of a woman with a Jewish father who had undergone a non-Orthodox conversion in the United States and made aliyah. She had tried to convert through the state conversion court, but was rejected for the usual reasons. Although she is completely observant, her fiancé would not commit to full religious observance, although he was willing to be respectful and ensure the household would maintain fidelity to halakha. As a result, she was unable to marry through the rabbinate. A religious rabbi had agreed to privately convert her and then marry the couple privately, and so she was trying to enter the chuppah in the manner of Jewish brides for thousands of years, in purity and sanctity following immersion in a ritual bath or mikvah. The mikvah, after consultation with the supervising rabbi, turned her nonetheless away. Despite this humiliation and pain, this truly sincere convert quietly went to another mikvah, this time without disclosing her situation, and simply immersed. This kind of thuggery, both in the conversion courts and in the mikvahot, is justified through religious indignation that such institutions are only protecting the integrity of the entire system. They are sure that without their rigidity, thousands of years of Jewish practice will dissolve, or worse, slide downwards towards the vortex of reformation. They would do well, however, to ask themselves whether they are truly acting for the sake of heaven or seek to hold on to a power base that allows for totality of control over religious practice. This week's Torah portion, Korach, is one of divisiveness and rebellion couched in holy language but devoid of holy intent. This truth is well represented in Pirkei Avot, Chapter 5, Mishnah 17, and I quote, Every controversy that is pursued in a heavenly cause is destined to be perpetuated, and that which is not pursued in a heavenly cause is not destined to be perpetuated. Which can be considered a controversy pursued in a heavenly cause? This is the controversy of Hillel and Shammai. And that is not pursued in a heavenly cause? This is the controversy of Korach and his congregation. In the aftermath of the spies, the leadership of the nation has been considerably weakened. The nation has lost their destination, entry into the land, and as a result, the people have lost the focus they gained at Sinai and are mired in despondency. The moment is ripe for Korach and his company to challenge Aaron's exclusive right to priesthood, which represents the upper echelons of spiritual and potentially political power. Korach seeks to seemingly, seemingly democratize the nation by decrying Moshe's elitism. You have gone too far. For all of the community are holy, all of them, and the Lord in their midst. Why then do you raise yourself above the Lord's congregation, he says in the Torah. 
Korach uses the rallying cry of religious freedom in order to foment discontent. On the face of it, he is fighting for a closer relationship with God that a hierarchy of leadership allows. These are intoxicating words. Korach creates divisiveness precisely by offering egalitarianism. We are all equal. We are all holy. We should all be able to make decisions for ourselves together with God. Korach, of course, has no real intention to flatten the hierarchy of leadership in order to build a kibbutz. He is making a run on the leadership for himself. This is something that Moshe understands when he gives his answer. Is it not enough for you that the God of Israel has set you apart from the community of Israel and has given you access to him? Now that he has advanced you and all your fellow Levites with you, do you seek the priesthood too? Thunders Moshe back at Korah in the Parsha. Moshe sees what Korah is really after, unbridled power cloaked in religious language of holiness. Korah represents self-interest, but he knows how to use the language of democracy, nationalism, and most importantly, of God, in order to seduce the people into listening to his rhetoric. He also injects an element of truth, which makes his bid all the more convincing. We are all holy, for we are all indeed created in the image of God. But beneath the veneer of truth lies raw ambition to take control. The coup fails spectacularly. Korach and his camp are swallowed whole into the earth. 250 members of the elite are consumed by holy fire, and a plague consumes 14,700 from among the people, who were swept up into a fight they mistook for holy idealism. In every generation, we have an element of the Korach story. Divisiveness is justified by invoking the name of God and the inability to change any aspect of Torah, particularly in discussions around complex topics that affect society. While halacha as a system is often praised for its ingenuity in confronting the challenges of modernity, much depends on the willingness of the rabbinic authority base to implement this ingenuity. In that vein, let us circle back to the example brought in Pirkei Avot of a controversy pursued in a heavenly cause. The Mishnah is referring to the well-known narrative surrounding Hillel and Shammai, who famously disagreed on many, many halachic issues, and in fact had very different approaches to halakhic interpretation. This following story is brought in Tractate Eruvin. Rabbi Abba said in the name of Shmuel, for three years the house of Hillel and the house of Shammai argued. One said, the halakha is like us, and the other said, the halakha is like us. A heavenly voice spoke, Elu ve'elu divrei Elohim chayim. These and those are the words of the living God. And yet, says the heavenly voice, the halakha is like the house of Hillel. A question was raised. Since the heavenly voice declared, Elu ve'elu divrei Elohim chayim, both these and those are the words of the living God, why was the halakha established to follow the opinion of Hillel? The Gemara answers, it is because the students of Hillel were kind and gracious. They taught their own ideas as well as the ideas from the students of Shammai. Not only for this reason, but they went so far as to teach Shammai's opinions first. The story ends with the understanding that both schools represent the words of a living God despite divergent positions on many matters. Yet when a decision has to be made of who to follow, the house of Hillel is favored because of their behavior towards those they argued with, the students of Shammai. It is not only the Ben Adam Lamakom, or laws between people and God that matter. 
In fact, behavior ben adam lechavero between people and one another is more critical with regard to applied halakha. It is noteworthy to my mind that God is a living God when the words of Torah are interpreted and applied through the prism of halakha. How is it possible that when one permits and the other forbids, both should be speaking the words of the living God? There is a story told in the Jerusalem Talmud, Tractate Sanhedrin. Rabbi Yane said, had the Torah been given as one cut, meaning one final and changeable decision in all matters without any possibility for divergent interpretations, we could not stand on our feet. We cannot live by such a Torah. And God spoke to Moses. At that time, Moses said to God, make known to me how the halacha is to be decided. He answered him, one has to accept the opinion of the majority. If the majority acquits him, acquit him. If they find him guilty, punish. The Agadah continues. It is necessary that the Torah be capable of 49 ways of interpretation of affirming an opinion and 49 ways of opposing it. Moses, when he ascended on high to receive the Torah, was shown every in every case 49 possibilities to forbid and 49 possibilities to permit. He asked the Holy One, blessed be he about it. He was answered that the intention was that all, that all these possibilities of interpretation should be entrusted to the sages of Israel of each generation, that the decision be in accordance with their resolution. This is just a fascinating text that affirms the idea of machloket l'shem shamayim, disagreement for the sake of heaven, that is already built into the giving of the Torah by God from the moment that it was given. It is literally for the sake of heaven to disagree, to uncover 49 possibilities to permit and 49 possibilities to prohibit. But of course, if we go back to the text in Eruvin, at the end of the day, decisions do have to be made so that we can imply the interpretation into our lives. And for that, we need a different type of structure and scaffolding, that of majority, perhaps, that of menschlichkeit, perhaps, whatever it is, in order to translate the theoretical possibilities into something applied. Rashi writes in Erevin, when two Amoraim disagree with each other about the law, there is no untruth there. Each of them justifies his opinion. One gives a reason to permit, the other a reason to forbid. One compares the case before him to one precedent, the other compares it to something different. It is possible to say that both speak the words of the living God. At times, one reason is valid. At other times, another reason. For reasons change in the wake of even only small changes in the situation. Built into the halachic system, writes Rashi, is this very possibility of multiple layers of interpretation and understanding. In a different vein, Rabbi Yosef Albo, in his book called Sefer Ikarim, wrote, the Torah cannot be complete in such a manner that it should be adequate for all times. Says Rabbi Albo, there is no way to have a static text that has one uniform interpretation. It would never survive. He continues, new details are continually occurring in the affairs of men and customs and actions, too many to be included in a book. Therefore, God revealed to Moshe orally some general, prin general principles, only briefly alluded to, so that with their help, the sages in each generation may deduce the new particulars. Moving onward, what I'd like to look at is a Mishnah in Yavamot of what this looked like when Beit Shammai and Beit Hillel disagreed and then had to live 
next to one another in the aftermath of disagreement. What we find out in Yivamot, the Mishnah of Yivamot, chapter 1, Mishnah 4, Beit Shammai permitted the rival wives to the brothers, and Beit Hillel forbid them. Now, it doesn't really matter what the disagreement is, but the disagreements are fundamental regarding issues having to do with marriage and sexual prohibition. Beit Shammai disqualified certain women from marrying into the priesthood. Beit Hillel permitted those women to marry into the priesthood. And, um, and these kind of disagreements continue on and on. And the Mishnah concludes, although Beit Hillel prohibit the rival wives to the brothers and Beit Shammai permit rival wives to the brothers, Beit Shammai did not refrain from marrying women from Beit Hillel, nor did Beit Hillel refrain from marrying women from Beit Shammai. And even more so, even though they disagreed in halachot having to do with ritual purity and impurity, which really speaks to the heart of the intricacies of daily living, of food that can become impure, of vessels that can become impure, of the status of people who are impure, and the process they go through in which to become pure. These are fundamental disagreements that really affect our ability to live uh, alongside one another. The Mishnah concludes they did not refrain from handling ritually pure objects, each with the other, even though they disagreed as to when something was pure and something impure, they used one another's vessels. While interpretations after this Mishnah try to lessen its implications, the halakhic philosophy is central. It is imperative that there be different access points through which we enter and applied an ongoing relationship with God through interpretation of Torah and application of mitzvot. In addition, the culture of disagreement must bring with it a culture of respect and the ability to get along and live alongside one another and share vessels with one another, so basic, right? Borrowing sugar from the neighbor and marry one another despite some of the fundamental halakhic disagreements. Holy space requires structure and relies on a system, but it is a far more fluid and flexible system than many religious leaders would have us believe. When religious posturing is used to keep people out of sacred spaces, those with authority would do well to think of Korah, who instead of striving to bring greater holiness to the people, went in pursuit of power. In contrast to Hillel and Shammai, who were truly in search of entry points and access to the words of a living God. Thank you again for downloading this podcast, a production of the Pardes Institute of Jewish Studies. If you liked what you just listened to, please give us a five-star review wherever you download your podcast today. And be sure to follow us on Spotify for the latest episode of Pardes from Jerusalem. Tune in next week as Rav Mike Foyer discusses Parashat Chukat. Thanks for listening.